no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World, the second podcast episode that we are doing in the year 2019. I'm Adam Kroom, joined once again by Ralph Bellavo. Hey, Ralph. Adam. How are you? You know, I noticed in our intro, one of the things it doesn't mention is the destruction of Space Force. So oh. maybe, maybe Space Force will actually survive Media and the End of the World. Maybe. It's Maybe possible. they'll still be out there. That's true. And they yeah. will have been yeah. working on terraforming Mars. And Why should we worry about the end of the world when we have ways of leaving the world we now have, and, yeah. and defense of the world? And a potentially infinite number of planets we can destroy into the future. Yeah. That's... Um, are, uh, are, is the Space Force currently furloughed? Oh, you know, that's an interesting question. I would I would think that they would be considered essential services. So Space Force might be working without pay. You, In you the know, event that the world ends, what's the job security for right. Space Force? <laughs> yeah, do who signs get, the checks? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, you, do you get reassigned to another planet to yeah. defend? You know, one of the things, all right, so we all live in this world where we consume an enormous amount of science fiction stuff. And uh, going all the way back to the 1950s, one of my favorite authors, Philip K. Dick, wrote a lot about colonization of space. And the thing that he zeroed in on, which I think was brilliant, was most of it's going to be boring. And so you're going to have to come up with interesting ways to use your time and energy. Like if you're going to go terraform a planet, you're going to have a lot of time on your hands. Right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so. this is where um, uh, Boomtown by Sam Anderson, right? Uh -huh. Sort of the, the, the chronology of the history of, uh, of Oklahoma City, which we have reviewed. It's actually, fun fact, uh, the most listened to podcast episode we have now. Really? Yeah, it is. Huh. It, uh, it's, you know, about double of what a normal episode uh, listening stat is for us. So, so that's incredibly cool. So listen to that episode if you haven't checked that out. But one thing that I love about it is it's like one of the, you know, the only, or not one of the only, but a, but a modern American colonization story in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of what it's like to build a, uh, you know, a, a culture, at least within our society, uh, in within the 20, late uh, 19th, but mostly 20th century. Um, and it's just kind of funny to, to think of the idea of starting all over again yeah. and what, what absurdity happens when you have absolutely no rules or laws in front of you or roads, <laughs> you know, and people just standing up like, I'm going to be mayor. You know, not, I'm in charge. Really, I mean, it's not really anarchy. It's not really no. chaos. It's just like... You know this notion of the wild west. Right? Yeah, yeah. There, there's actually it, it reminds me a little bit of um, stories that existed when China was doing its kind of middle class development thing, and it was like building these cities out of nothing. And so there were these amazing pieces of video and photographs of sort of blocks of enormous apartment buildings where nobody was living because nobody lived in these cities yet. They were being built out of nothing. You know, so it's sort of like the vertical version of Oklahoma City, which had just grids overlapping yeah. each other and and things like that. Well, that's interesting that that's the most uh, listened to. It is. 
podcast yeah, episode. It's our Super Bowl. Yeah, I thought it, it. I thought it would have been the one where we gave the key to eternal life, but <laughs> you know, maybe I'm wrong. There's enough self help out there. People are, are turning to sources other than us for for uh, for eternal happiness. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of Super Bowls. You excited about Super Bowl or Super Bowl ads? I feel like we can do it. We can maybe we should do a future episode reviewing the the advertisements of the Super Bowl. We could do that if there. I mean, if there's something as engaging as like the '84 lumber ad. Do you remember the '84 lumber ad? I don't. I know it, 1984 by Apple Macintosh, that, which is. But this was the one where they were doing '84 lumber. The company did this piece that was about basically following uh, a, a mother and daughter as they were kind of immigrating to the border of the U.S. It's a beautiful, it's a, it's a beautifully shot little story. And uh, so, uh, I, I, in fact, we'll put a link to it because I don't want to ruin That's the end. That's a good idea. I think, I think there was a 30, seconds, a 30 second or one minute spot they bought for the Super Bowl and then that linked to a three minute film online. And it's it's kind of a pretty epic little story about walls and immigration and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. I would argue from what I've read about uh, ads, so I, I try to keep up with, obviously, as, as I teach advertising to keep up on what's happening, um, I, I, I'm getting a sense, my prediction is that some of the best work is going to stop taking place as an actual Super Bowl ad, meaning that rather than, you know, coughing up the four to $5 million it takes to get the, the 30 second or 60 second spot, uh, people are starting to do the advertisements kind of being experiences that take place uh, either right before it or online or actual physical events. I believe, I, I wish I remembered who it was, but there's like, you know, I think it's maybe Skittles is going to do like a concert or no, no. Uh, I should I should look it up and so I don't I don't get this wrong but it's like a they're going to do like a a play that's only going to take place once and it's going to take place during the Super Bowl huh. and then you have to go see it it's actually physical and then it's sort of over you know wow uh, so those are the kind of things that I think we're going to see happen is the Super Bowl is going to become become a almost like a holiday uh, for uh, uh, corporations to allow, you know, to, to give out messages, but not necessarily be connected yeah. towards the actual game itself. Yeah, yeah, so. with little pointers toward what else they're doing. Um, yeah, I, I think the uh, the entertaining part of the lead up because I I re- and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I just don't care about the game at all. Well, like I, I you're, you're in luck because there's, there's, I, I, I've got, I, I linked to a couple interesting uh, graphs and some of the presentations that I do. Is the amount of commercials now are more than the actual game itself, even by like a uh, factor of like two or three. So don't worry about it. <laughs> if you don't care about the game, uh, it's almost like it, it's like it, like the the reason for watching has flipped. It really has. You know, you you go to 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 be a part of a cultural experience more for consumerism than for sport right well as any hockey fan will tell you you know hockey is only one of the things you want to be seeing when you go see a hockey game right i mean there's there's other parts of the event that are supposed to be part of it too but uh but i think i i mean i'm just i i'm i'm and i'm of the opinion as i think i've said on this very venue before that all the good sports happen on ice Except Ooh, for, I like that. Except for gymnastics. Yeah. Gymnastics on ice would be kind of awesome, but that would be skating. That would be figure skating, <laughs> yeah. actually, wouldn't which it? Is, which is cool to watch. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it's gone sort of out of style. So as long as we're talking about ads. Yes. Let's talk about the Gillette ad. Let's do it. 
So there's an ad that Gillette put out that created a little bit of controversy oop, oop, among a small group of people. And they, I always do that. I have to stop. You have to move it. I have to move Something it. Something about you wants to move the mic yeah. stand. I, yeah, sure. To t- I just have to Can't stop. Can't do it. But I haven't hit it yet. I'm keeping my yeah. gestures at table level. We believe the best men can be was a, a Gillette film. It's about two minutes long and it's online version and it's really not hard to find. Um, and we'll it's, put it in the source notes. We'll put it in the source notes. It's really worth looking at because of uh, the argument that it's presenting which is essentially an extension of what would come out of the Me Too movement which were, and the, the idea that's come up in a lot of um, groups that uh, when you're in a privileged position or a position of power or whatever, you need to be paying attention to your own group. So it's not that the Me Too movement and women are going to be able to really directly affect men's behavior the way that the, the Gillette ad. Because what you see then, to, to sort of suggest the content of the ad is you see this notion that men need to take responsibility for um, not just being bystanders, but, but you know, intervening when they see episodes of things that are unacceptable. If you see a kid being bullied or if you see another man um, doing something in terms of uh, treating uh, um, a woman in a way that is not cool. And uh, and of course, this ad is not, not terribly surprising. It's very well produced. Uh, it's very controversial. Shocking. Yeah. Aren't you? I know you're like the and and of course the the reaction to it was just amazing because there were a lot of people saying that essentially this commercial is like uh uh turning men into girls yeah <laughs> and doing this you know doing this like really irresponsible horrible you know um making people feel bad about themselves. Now, yeah. of course, if you're starting to feel bad about yourself, you might want to think about your actions and whether they're acceptable or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it's interesting. I don't Did we ever talk about the Colin Kaepernick ad last? No. I don't think we did. I don't think we did. I think we skipped over it. Was it. And we, and we, and we, we, we shouldn't have. But um, I... Um, yeah, I have similar feelings to this as I as I do the cap ad in that. Um, so I will say that historically, I think it's been um, done really well when brands will sort of attach themselves to things that are happening within culture. Right. And showing that 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 brands aren't something that exist outside of the context of the culture that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but. My some what the criticism I would give, and it, I can't give it, you know, I think for a few years is like, will Gillette stick to this, right? Well, they, you know, in the same way that Dove has stuck to um, a ha- having a brand that's built around uh, thinking bigger about what you know, having a bigger. Uh, bigger is the wrong word, a broader definition of what uh, beautiful means uh, in relation to women's bodies, mm-hmm. you know, and they've done a really good job of kind of keeping the the real beauty campaign going. Uh, and we've obviously seen historical or other brands. Pepsi's a, a great one that did this about sort of the youth generation and sort of ha- being really tapped into what's happening culturally. Until. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, not not. not consistently but you know i think that you look at campaigns um and then also obviously nike is another one that Mm -hmm. i think has has done fairly well over time so so my analysis is you know is this is this a is a one-time shot because if if they just do it once right and it's we see this me too movement and we're going to 
uh, sort of try to attach ourselves to it and communicate a message once, uh, I kind of like grit my teeth at that. But if they, you know, if Gillette wants to build their brand around this long term, I say great, you know, because that allows us, you know, in the same way that we're starting to see more uh, brands that are geared towards a a, uh, a a woman or female consumer become broader about what their definition of beauty is. I'd love to see a, a broader definition, or at least sort of a dialing back of of manhood, you mm-hmm. know, and that not being that because it because the the farther we get away from both of those, the less that really matters, right? right. You know, yeah. is is how you, how your your sex or gender is supposed to force what type of products you're supposed to buy. Well, so right, and that's the so um, so you know, of course, this is something that has come up in classrooms that I teach in, and and you know, the, sort of like the first step, both with Dove and with Nike and with Gillette, is you know, sort of like a, uh, just acknowledging to oneself, this is a corporation that's trying to products so ultimately you always have to put that all under sort of like the Venn diagram part that says selling razors yeah and by the way the the I mean the early news is that sales have not increased yeah which is which is again it is interesting from the context of will Gillette stay in it right Right. yeah if it's if it's not doing that and obviously not not the entire part of advertising is to is to generate you know increase revenue but uh, you would assume that you'd want to stimulate demand with whatever you're investing in. Right. So will they stick with it even though it might not sell them more products? Well, and it also might be a question, and this is, again, something to interrogate once you get sort of past the pure economics of trying to sell women's beauty products or shoes or whatever, uh, that it also ties into how you feel about the company, right? That's a lot of the right. effect. And and one of the things I think is interesting about some of these sort of more edgier pieces is that they're taking a chance of alienating um, chunks of their customer base. And, um, you know, all of a sudden you've got people... You know, I don't know, throwing Gillette products out their window or <laughs> so, smashing razors. I, I haven't seen any of this myself. I bet it's out there. I'm really, really be surprised. And so that's all now on top of the, you know, the broken Kerrigs and the other whatever it is that uh, and the pile of Nikes that people burned and all the other, you know, which is really kind of funny um, that, you know, you're destroying your own stuff is uh, the only thing that kind of bears a relationship with is that uh, tendency to kind of tear your own clothing when you're in mourning. But um, uh, anyway, so Gillette's taking a chance of alienating part of their audience, and, and probably it did. Of course, then part of what we need to keep in mind as media literate people is that once this gets into the social media sphere, then it becomes sort of chum for bots and for uh, trolls. And so then the discussion becomes very suspect. You don't know how much of what you're reading is some kind of an honest response from people from a position and how much of it is being essentially, you know, geared up by other people who want to see something much more dramatic to come out of it. Right. So that's, you know, depending on who you're reading, there's such a large percentage of stuff on the internet that isn't sincere. It's manipulation that's being done. So, yeah. And that's just part of our environment. Um, yeah. And we'll see, we'll see what, you know, and some of the successes we're talking about it now, right? Yeah. We've got people talking. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we'll see. We'll see what it does. Yeah, I mean, clearly Nike survived whatever damage Kaepernick might have caused by being tied to them. Dove seems to be doing yeah. just fine. Yeah. So historically, if you do it well and you do it tastefully, 
uh, and it's it's going to be a positive for the company long term. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and like I said, brands like Nike and Pepsi are sort of indicators of of you know you can do that. Yeah. So. Well, Pepsi, I don't. You know, I I never looked at what the effect of the because there was the Pepsi ad that everybody hated, right? The one where you had a Jenner offering a can of Pepsi to a peacekeeping officer mm-hmm. in the middle of a bunch of economic protests that was seen as a really like tone deaf response to what was going on. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's always it, because we're in such a commercialized environment, it's always interesting to kind of think about and, and become aware of how, particularly now that we are so self-conscious of our media environment, how the media environment represents itself. Yeah. Uh, my favorite from a, a million years ago was the with the first Sprite campaign that basically the, the ad campaign was don't do what the advertising tells you drink Sprite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was Kevin Garnett. And they were, they were great pieces. They were really nicely done. But they had this kind of like sarcastic way of saying, yeah. you know, don't trust ad. Don't trust us because we're lying to you. Yeah. Drink yeah. Sprite. Right. right. And right. it was enormously successful. It completely upended the clear beverage market. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the Pepsi stuff I'm referring to is more like 20th century. I mean, obviously, soda has taken a huge hit since yeah. since the turn of the century. Um, but it's hard, to, it's hard not to even imagine, and maybe it's just because of where I live geographically, uh, that, you know, there was a, there's a moment in time, right, where Pepsi almost overtakes Coca-Cola because it has this movement through youth. Um, the Pepsi generation. That's right. <laughs> and it leads to new Coke, right? Because uh, we've got we, right. to reformulate what we're doing to be able to compete with the Pepsi challenges. Right. And then a slightly addled Pepsi company goes, oh, I've got it, Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> and people are like, what? <laughs> nah. <laughs> There's something about a cinnamon-flavored beverage that's clear that's a little – just doesn't make it. So. Yeah, it doesn't make it. I, I also remember a green ketchup at one point. That yeah. was a thing that, that tried to tried to happen. Yeah. Now, I remember Jolt. you remember Jolt Cola? Yeah. That was an awesome experiment in human self-poisoning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting product. And actually, I, I have to be honest. I had a uh, relative whose, whose health was very problematic, and uh, actually Jolt Cola – uh, save this person's life. Oh wow! Because they were uh, having such enormous, and I, I can I, I don't want to get too maudlin with this, but uh, but the, it was such a high level of sugar and caffeine that, uh, and, and it was somebody who was basically chronically um, not not able not able to hold anything down, and Jolt Cola was kind of the solution because the enormous level of caffeine made the sharp pain headaches that were causing mm. the distress to go away, and the sugar was kind of stabilizing yeah. his his body at the same time. Well, so. I, I'm a I'm a child of Surge. Surge was a big hit <laughs> yeah. uh, when I was a kid, and also a, a I don't know if you remember one that Pepsi put out called Josta, J O S T A. No. What was that? I don't, I don't honestly. I can't. I can't even like recall with my memory what the exact flavor was. But I do. I do remember it being a, a brief brand as a child that they they put out. Yeah, yeah. We have uh, in in the lovely uh, state of Oklahoma uh, a business called Pops that yeah. actually features every soda they can get their hands on. And they have. Uh, I went there one time with my children, and we got a bottle of bacon flavored soda. Oh, nice! And a bottle of corn flavored soda. Ooh. And let me save you the trouble. It's not worth it. <laughs> it's yeah. so disgusting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the. 
the world. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. I don't know if this if, the, if we're going to see something similar when we get around to Super Bowl ads that somebody's going to try to you know take on I the market. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if we see even more than two ads that are very uh, social focused this year from mm-hmm. brands. Yeah. And again, it's sort of like, you know, we 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 saw this uh, cultural backlash to how football players were reacting to what's happening politically. Um, we've seen it happen with musicians. It'd be really interesting to see long term how many brands are getting in there and having, you know, have want to have a strong uh, opinion and do they stick to them long term? Well, so. being the music head that you are, let me ask you: What do you think about all of the uh, controversy surrounding the halftime musical performance that you had? So many people who were turning down the opportunity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, I think that's really interesting. I I I I was actually surprised it became as big of a story as it did because it was sort of like a, everybody's turning it down, when in reality only like one or two people had turned it down, you know, and but they had been pretty vocal that you know and now I don't think I want to do this right now. I'm kind of standing by Kaepernick, and so I'm not going to do it. Well, then it became sort of the thing. It's like if so and so is not going to do it, you know, it's I can't remember who the, the one of the originals was, whether it was Rihanna or, or someone like that um uh you know who was it but anyways um they say no and then I, all of a sudden everyone said no because it became a story that came out mm-hmm. you know and uh the super bowl halftime show is, is it's a weird event uh you don't get paid for it right you're not compensated in any way um it's hard to win the halftime show because people have incredibly high expectations mm-hmm. and so very few acts come out of it i'm trying to think of the last i guess prince is probably the last one i can think of where everyone was like genuinely happy about how how it went i uh, think the the uh i have some and even that had some controversy right. to it the uh, springsteen one was the one that i've probably seen the most because of at home springsteen is a big deal thing yeah so was there was a say, recording of that, that there was, there was katie perry and and, uh-huh. and left shark or right shark right <laughs> <laughs> became a meme after the uh, after the super bowl but i mean like you know everyone kind of feels underwhelmed with the last few being uh, Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake. Um, I'm trying to think of others that have been more recent. Uh, Coldplay. You know, it's just like, ah, eh, okay, they did it. You yeah. know, it happened. But yeah, it's kind of yeah. I mean, it's it's a little. It's still a little bit more like. Uh, um, and I mean, it's not a full-blown musical performance. I mean, I, I actually, right. again, being the hockey person that I am, and they have the Winter Classic Games, which would have been at the, you know, right at the end of December, beginning of January, and they usually have a musical act come on. And what's funny about that is that they're always like, because it's outdoors and cold, <laughs> they're dressed in coats and hats. I think it was Weezer this year, was the because Weezer's come back from the dead. Because of Africa. Uh, yeah. Because of Toto. <laughs> so I think that they were the ones who were playing at the hockey hockey game that uh chicago was at and it's 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 again it's the same kind of thing it's like you know sports 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 music for 10 minutes sports 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 right so it's just like yeah. dropped into the middle of it or something like that so but but i mean one interesting thing to keep in mind about all of this is that
that we are, our culture has become so fragmented and people consume media and all sorts of different little bits and pieces and then you have to go meet your friends and say oh by the way did you watch blah 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 and they go no what is that and right you go oh it's on netflix you got to watch it and so it's sort of like the slow motion conglomeration of watching the same thing the super bowl is probably the only example except for uh, a hard news event right uh where it's actually creating that synchronicity it's not an asynchronous event it's a synchronous yeah. event um people don't time shift the super bowl the musical performance separate and the commercial separate but the event itself is still seen as a big deal totally. visual event yeah. i mean it, there are very few things that we're all watching together anymore yeah uh the super bowl really is sort of that last last standing uh piece of a, of a, a cultural synchronous experience mm-hmm. i fact check myself i just want to i want to say i was okay. correct correct it is skittles who's doing the play <laughs> okay. and it was Rihanna who declined the Super okay. Bowl I feel, I, I feel good that those were you know I put those out there not being 100% but I have looked That's, that, was, that was good that was good because I've, I've I feel uh, good about that I was, I was thinking about us going back and having to chop out those misstatements yeah I didn't want to do that spot on. I wanted to make sure <laughs> that makes me makes my lazy editing much more easy or that's, much that's easier good. So that's good uh, well, uh, two other little things I thought might be worth uh, talking about a little bit this week in the media world, and this is really this would go under the uh, things you might want to have a look at category uh, if you were interested, um, because I, I am feeling fairly strongly that these are interesting things. There's a uh, scholar who teaches at Lehigh University. He's a journalism professor. His name is Jeremy Lateau. Somebody definitely worth following on Twitter. And he put together, this is a shift into the world of journalism, he put together essentially a history of uh, tracking what's going on. As um, as the news has shown lately, there's a lot of layoffs, and the layoffs that were happening in the media industry are now, uh, um, in the newspaper version of the media industry, are now shifting over to the digital realm. There were a very large number of layoffs at the Huffington Post recently, and um, also at BuzzFeed. So these things are echoing through. Um, and th- so then it always becomes the question, and, and Adam, I'll throw this at you when, after we talk about what Latau has to say a little bit, <clears throat> um, whether this is a, a good time to be getting an education in journalism or not, right? Is this something that a, a parent or a student should consider? And of course, you should always consider it because it's you're going to have to major in something, and you're going to learn a lot of as as we do here a lot of valuable skills, uh, particularly the writing thing and the thinking thing. That's what we pride ourselves on. So Latau says this, and I'll I'll just go through the first couple of posts he's got on Thread. He writes, "For those who aren't quite sure why these media layoffs keep happening, or think quote it's the internet." or, quote, people don't pay to subscribe. There's a lot more going on, though that is part of that. Here's a Cliff Notes version, not exhaustive, but it hits the highlights. What is considered the golden age of newspapers ended around the late 1980s. Subscriptions began dropping in the 70s year over year, but not enough to show cracks. Newspapers spent most of the 20th century consolidating into chains, but in the latter half of the century, they became part of conglomerates and were publicly traded. Profit margins for companies like Gannett and Knight Ritter were commonly around 30 to 40 percent. Profit margins in those media industries were 30 to 40 percent. 
That is an insane margin, Latell writes. For comparison, your local supermarket, which arguably is more necessary for you to live, is lucky to clear in the low single digits. Anyhow, most of those profits went to shareholders who came to expect them over time. This is actually very much like the argument that um, Ben Bagdikian made in his several editions of the book The Media Monopoly, where he was saying that people in the newspaper industry were just enjoying these enormous profit margins and became addicted to them. And so then when they weren't coming, they kind of panicked and, and moved to these other consolidation strategies. So Latell goes on, because of that, newspapers became, as the joke goes, a license to print money. So chains started gobbling up papers all over the country in the 80s and 90s. They took on debt to do this because with 40% margins, there wasn't much downside in that model. Then the Internet came along, and the bill for short-sighted, quarter-to-quarter thinking came due. During the golden era, newsrooms didn't invest in innovating their news products very much. They invested in technology to make it easier and require less hands. So they were caught flat-footed, but not immediately. And Latteau writes, I remember as a college student in the 90s attending a journalism conference and hearing publishers boast that newspapers were here to stay. They believed their product, not the news, the physical object, was essential. So by the mid-90s, you had chains saddled with massive debt and already had readership shrinking year over year. Easy self-publishing on the Internet took a bit to come to fruition and required technical skill. Blogger was invented in the late 90s, and that was your sea change. Suddenly, publishers who weren't used to competition and didn't invest in innovation were competing with more than their crosstown newspaper rival, if they even had one anymore. Consolidations and mergers killed those, too. Circulation levels continued to drop, and the trend accelerated in the early part of the last decade. With less readership and huge debt service commitments, it became a vicious spiral that required more cuts to meet debt goals and satisfy shareholders who were used to big profits. And, and this is the, the, the kicker for thinking about journalism, less quality meant less people found value in the product, and so they subscribed less. This is what Phil Meyer famously called the debt spiral. Newspapers ate their own seed corn during bumper crop days and then had no resources when it got tough. So he's describing here the cycle of consolidation, uh, reducing subscriptions, and then sort of like a miscalculation about how the timing between technology and what people were going to consume were going to happen. So, um, you know, one of the things to think about for most of us, um, and, and I'm just including myself for the sake of taking responsibility, we think that information, and this is me talking, not Lato, we think that information should have a free price point. And there's a few places that have paywalls. There's a few places that have tried to figure out other ways of monetizing what they're doing. They, of course, want you to keep your ad blockers off so they can you know, monetize what they're doing on their site. But we haven't really settled down to a combination of what people want in terms of information and a way to actually make that happen outside of a public sector version of it. So, um, so Jeremy Lateau is the person who wrote this history, and I think it's a really interesting, you know, easy to read uh, um, condensation of what's happened to uh, the news industry over the past, you know, three or four decades, and maybe some sense of why this is beginning to have echoes in the digital world. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when I read the history of media, there's always a consistent theme of uh, you know, decentralization versus centralization and, or, or anytime that we see, um, large conglomerates happen and it happens in every, every media, you know, at one point, uh, radio is something that's a little bit more independent and something that you, 
do on your own, and all of a sudden we have large radio networks, and the same thing with telephone, uh, and uh, and we've seen we've seen the same thing over and over and over again. Um, I mean, that's always the consistent theme, and where it, you know exists for the internet uh, is thinking about how does a world that's mostly ran by Facebook and Google and a few companies. Um, start to squeeze out what's happening on the on the on the edges mm-hmm. of media itself, and so you know it's always sort of a, a cautious tale of what's likely to happen to any sort of technology that starts out as sort of a more open technology and becomes more closed or uh, over time right. as as, yeah. as things uh, close up. So. That's one of the reasons I think that the the not to point too much at right here, but I think the podcasting world is so interesting because totally there uh, it's it's still very open ended, and there are there are some moves toward consolidation into some groups. Right, you know, uh, the podcasts that are affiliated with Patreon or how subscriptions yeah. actually work, or you know, and it's it's I think um, I think it's starting to explode now because I think that there. Are, the number of podcasts that are available is getting larger and larger, and it's becoming a you know a sea of options. And this is all happening in a form that still has a lot of flexibility. I mean, I love listening to uh, uh, podcasts that are trying to do drama. I love listening to podcasts that are doing commentary. I love listening to podcasts that are trying to change up how we think about how journalism is. I thought Serial was stunning, you know, particularly the first season of it because you were just locked in. Um, And so far it hasn't really had any kind of a, that that I've been able to detect anyway, some kind of consolidation that's, that's really constraining what people can do with the form. So I hope that continues to be the case. Um, And looking at the way, you know, it kind of relates economic, and technology and access to tools. I heard a great interview on, um, I believe it was Fresh Air, with the um, person who did, I'm trying to remember, Ear Hustle, which was a podcast that was being done by somebody who was um, was in prison working with a sociologist, uh, I'm sorry, no, a photography professor, actually, um, on the West Coast, and it was through San Quentin Prison, and they were doing a podcast series with people who were incarcerated. Um, Jerry Brown commuted the sentence of the the gentleman who had been incarcerated, so he's now out, and they're looking for another host who's in in the institution to sort of take over that role. But, um, but it was a really kind of amazing uh, product, because you were hearing about and learning about things that you otherwise just don't have any access yeah. to. Yeah. Um, one thing that this reminds me of to, to, to tie it back to tying podcasting back to sort of, you know, being, being a, a journalism student studying journalism, um, it reminds me of a blog post that I had read uh, a handful of years ago by a guy named Dave Weiner, who is uh famous for among other things sort of being an early blogger and a huge advocate of syndication and RSS and I've always been a huge fan of blogging um and I've I've thought about it within the context of podcasting uh for the sim- similar reasons I mean the, the technology that powers blogging uh, being able to subscribe to a blog is the same technology that we use for podcast um it's all RSS you know mm-hmm. and so um, if it's the the major factor being that it's got an endless amount of endpoints because you can you can bring it into whatever reader uh, RSS reader you want to, to to 
poured it into or of course with podcasting you know any any kind of podcatcher that you want to listen to but anyways um he makes a like a really strong argument for the idea of um that journalists you know should, should need to learn to program you know or journal pro, pro journal programmers as he calls them and i don't know i don't think he necessarily means from like a you need to be able to build your own software type role but you need to have like a a a, a, a healthy amount of general web literacy to understand how these how these technologies work because I do think we have to get beyond the idea of one endpoint for uh, for a message you know one endpoint being one story that gets put in a print version that goes out in the paper right. you know and it's got to be able to, to translate to uh, to the digital world, which doesn't just mean syndicating the print version on digital. Right. Yes. Um, and it's got to be able to translate into video and it's got to be able to translate into a podcast. And, you know, one thing that one criticism that I, I hear a lot about recent moves in journalism and media is sort of the quote pivot to video, you know, right. uh, which uh, wasn't the right move because the move isn't to move away from one into the other no you know no mediums going to outdo the other i mean we 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 have you know it's the reason the tv didn't kill telephones or or the newspaper when it came out because people have a have a desire for all of these different types of mediums and so we have to be thinking more about how do we make sure that you know our students aren't just literate within the context of writing and, and editing and publishing, but really understanding the, you know, the, the different affordances that mediums have. Right. Or, or what, what uh, Douglas Rushkoff would refer to as, as the biases. What are they? And by biases in that sense, he means what do they have a tendency to advance or, mm, or, yeah. or get in the way of? Right. <clears throat> yeah. So which, are, I, which I think is a, yeah. you know, a major, uh, Evolution, at least we've seen with at in our college, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, not necessarily having a focus on broadcasting, but you know, focus broadening that to more media production. And, right. And uh, yeah, no, I think one of the interesting things you're making me think about is the that there are some podcasts that are have enough of a popular audience that they can actually tour and do oh, live yeah. events. And yeah. I think that's fantastic. And, right. and totally. You had uh, you know Pod Save America actually crossing over into HBO land, right? right. And then you have um, the you know the ones that I'm familiar with which would be you know last podcast on the left um you know being able to tour and do live events with audiences they were in oklahoma city not too long ago to to do their their thing yeah so these and i and i would still argue that these are i mean the thing that i find most interesting about these types of mediums is the communities that that flock to them or kind of grow around them and so these events create opportunities to, to, to meet other people that have similar interests to you, right. which is, you know, the heart of, of, of what we are as a society, as social creatures. And so I, I just find that super fascinating that, you know, that what might have happened on message boards 20 years ago, right. you know, is, is those, those niche digital communities are still gathering yeah. uh, and they're gathering around podcast or whatever those, you know those and those moments i mean i hate you're, you're making me feel a little nostalgic for those days of you know when you were first creeping around with orange or green text on the internet yeah. and you found out hey there's somebody else 
in the United States who listens to Gong and right. not the David Allen version of Gong because that was like involved yeah. way too much acid, but the really cool Pierre Moirelin version of Gong. You know, it's like these really tiny niche communities of people it, that absolutely. all of a sudden, you, you know, they, they weren't in your neighborhood, maybe not even in your city, but totally. there were people scattered around. Yeah. No, um, I don't know if I've talked about this experience on the podcast before, but uh, I, I feel like I have to some to some degree. Uh, I've mentioned before that, like my wife and I, what we something we do personally um, is that we enjoy watching competitive reality television. You know, mostly Survivor and Big Brother, um, and we listen to podcasts surrounding that sort of commentary. You know, almost like sports commentary uh-huh. of you know, did these people make the right decisions and sort of the strategy or the moves that they made within the game itself yeah anyways um never met anyone who's ever listened to these podcasts other than <laughs> us you know and it's sort of our our special deal but you know there was a a moment where uh some survivors this guy who was an ou alum who was on survivor who was at a football game all of a sudden through social media uh, he you know, he invited some other survivors to come to a football game. Uh, they were uh, tailgating on Campus Corner, <laughs> and like we, you know, happened to stumble upon it. They were in town, and then be at the tailgate of other survivors, and it was just like, oh my gosh, like like it just feels good to not feel lonely. Like you know, we're the only people in the world that actually do this. There right. are other people out there, yeah. and now we're hanging out with them. And it's funny because you can't even brag about that because no one cares. <laughs> like you know, like 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 your thing you want to do is take pictures and post them up and say like, ha, you know, I ran into so-and-so, yeah. you know, winner of season X of, <laughs> of Survivor, this theme, and, and no one cares yeah. at all. It, but, uh, but, well, it, but, it, but it is, it feels good to be what you feel like is amongst your people. Sure, right? yeah. And there's this funny thing where, you know, when we, you know, we kind of move among nonfiction and fictional texts all the time, and we have really, I, I remember... Reality television is the best of both worlds, yeah, by right. the way. It's the best blend of fiction <laughs> but, and nonfiction. The interesting thing is that, you know, what, what uh, one of my colleagues, um, uh, Jennifer Barnes here, studies, and uh, she's a young adult author and, and uh, also in psychology, and she studies parasocial relationships. And we all have this idea of, you know, when we think about our relationships to fictional characters, of course, I'm kind of legacy old school, so it's a little harder. But then you get in these conversations with people who are sort of more in the flow of that. And, you know, you can go from somebody you know to somebody who is on a reality TV show to a fictional character. And this conversation is as if they're all living on yeah. the same plane. Yeah. And it's just, you know, I remember when, you know, when people were getting very excited about the new BBC Sherlock and they started talking about, you know, Holmes and Watson and the characters and everything. And they were just like sort of like, you know, because of the fan poaching and everything else, it was sort of like they were talking about people they knew. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, <laughs> For my generation, Harry Potter is sort of the biggest example of, you know, there's now a Harry Potter world that you can go to. And I love that, like, J.K. Rowling continues to sort of roll out stuff about, you know, uh, I think I read something last week of of her saying, like, occasionally the sorting hat would sort people into the New York Mets, you know, like, <laughs> like, like you, were, you were relegated to, you know, to be uh, with a below average uh, Major League Baseball team. And right. she, she's add that now to like, <laughs> and of course, you know, like whatever she says is, is, is truth, even though it exists outside of the books, because it's her world that she has created and continues to create. Yeah. Uh, but now it's 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 it, it's part of the history is that yeah apparently the sorting hat eventually puts people in the Mets just for fun yeah that you know and 
I, I should, I'd like to make a, a slight recommendation there. Rowling also did some novels um, under the under the nom de plume Robert Galbraith and uh, the Cormoran Strike series, which it's a detective series about a war veteran who comes back. He's a, in London and uh, is a detective. And they did a, a series out of them on television. They were fantastic. They were really, really cool. Um, so, you know, she's she's got a couple of plates spinning, you know, yeah. going all the time. Yeah. And but it's a, just really good storytelling. Yeah, I mean, all those worlds are fun. It's mostly fun from the perspective of you look at someone else's crazy world and you're like, huh, you know, cosplay. Wow. Yeah. Like that's, you know, and then, but you realize you have the thing that you're into. Right. And yeah. on, on, you know, in pop culture that, uh, that, that, that makes it special to you. It's just funny how we, how we gravitate yeah. towards certain yeah, things. And sometimes it can get a little bit creepy again, you know, admitting to my science fiction nerdhood when you hear that there's a, a novel or a series of novels or something like that, that they're finally going to create into a television series, sort of yeah. like what they did with Man in the High Castle, which I'm, I'm still working my way through the, the end of the second and beginning of the third season. Um, but, you know, it's always sort of like this. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I hope it works. You know, uh, the Foundation series is something that yeah. it was the Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which is really complicated. And it'll be really interesting to see how it works if yeah. they're able to pull it off. Well, that's kind of, I mean, again, towards my youth and Harry Potter. Like, I, I didn't see the first Harry Potter movies when they came out. Uh, J.K. Rowling was still writing the series. So it yeah. hadn't been completely finished. And I had mentally created the world in my head, right? And you don't, you know, my my worry was ruining the images that I had in my head of what everyone looked like and, and what Hogwarts was and, uh, and, and that being replaced by whatever a, a movie producer has decided to create as the world itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so I, I think we always feel like uh, anytime that a, that a, that a medium that moves mediums that we have to, we have to wrestle with uh, how is this going to uh, impact my my experience with you know a, a text itself right or, right is it going to uh, you know one of the things is is how it changes your imagination about what you're reading into the, sort of like the crystallization of the actor's face or something sure, like that that right. has an effect on on how you think about it yeah so, exactly yeah there's always interesting side effects like that I was just looking up that the uh, in August of 2018 Apple commissioned a 10 episode straight to series order for Foundation so it's going to be a thing it, Gonna be, be interesting thing. to see how that comes out. All right, uh, last few minutes, Scott. Anything else you want to throw uh, out there? I I don't think so. It's going to be an exciting okay. time. We will hopefully in the in the shortly near future be having a little bit of a discussion about the Academy Award nominations. Yes, um, which are you know I, I think there's a lot positive to be said. Uh, I would recommend that if awards are important to you as a consumer, it's a good idea to see what you can find out about where the awards came from and sort of what they signify. There, For media industries, there are an enormous opportunity to sort of change the economics of it. Um, and, you know, it's not not purely a recognition. Uh, everybody finds it frustrating, worth talking about. I have to say I'm very annoyed that uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor wasn't nominated in the documentary. Category, I didn't realize which that. Is, which is amazingly stupid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. It was a. It was a very, uh, very moving documentary for lots of different reasons. A very well crafted documentary. But you know, again, this is, it's a reminder to me that when these awards roll around, the wire 
the best television show ever made, never got an Emmy. Yeah. And so my, my statement to people about awards is always, if we can go back in time and give The Wire all the Emmys it deserved, then I will like take awards seriously. But in the meantime, I always go, eh. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so we'll talk about the Academy Awards. And um, yeah. Good Whatever. Deal. Assuming the media world survives that long, then it'll we'll be see. worth it. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Talk to you then. See okay. ya. Thanks. Thanks.